Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. Today, I'm thrilled to say that we are joined by Linda Greenhouse. She teaches at Yale Law School, and she's the author of the memoir, Just a Journalist. Her other books include The U.S. Supreme Court, A Very Short Introduction, a biography of Justice Harry A. Blackman, Becoming Justice Blackman, and of course, her new book, what we're going to talk about today, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. She has, of course, reported and continues to write about the Supreme Court for the New York Times. She's the winner of the 1998 Pulitzer Prize. Linda Greenhouse, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Jessica. This was a wonderful book, and I want to, of course, focus on the book as we have our conversation today. And obviously, you know, one of the first lines of the title of the book, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I want to start just very broadly and ask you, um, is it too soon to start describing what Justice Ginsburg's legacy might be? No, I don't think it's too soon. I mean, she she started making her legacy back in the 1970s as a young lawyer before the court. So, um, no, I think her legacy is rather readily encompassed as someone who got the Supreme Court of the United States to focus on what the Constitution has to say about sex equality and continued in that theme when she had a chance to during her tenure on the Supreme Court. And she'd be the first to say, I think, that she came along at the right time. There might have been somebody else who did what she did, but she was the one who had the imagination and the vision to package her arguments in a way that the then nine middle-aged to elderly members of the Supreme Court could hear what she was saying and could understand what she was saying and could convert her arguments into the constitutional law that we are living with today. I know that there's so much kind of after the fact chatter about whether or not Justice Ginsburg should have stepped down. One of my friends said to me after the Dobbs argument that we listened to just recently, and I was startled by this, that she feels like part of Justice Ginsburg's legacy will be the unraveling of her legacy. And I'm wondering if you think that's a, a fair assessment. Did we put too much pressure on her that she should have stepped down, that she should have tried to basically game the system to ensure that President Obama could have named her successor? Well, you know, I mean, the notion that RBG had her finger in the dike and that disaster was going to ensue and it's her fault, I really resist that. You know, if Democratic voters had had their eyes on the ball and had turned out for Hillary Clinton in 2016, we wouldn't have this problem. If the Democrats had the ability to push back against Mitch McConnell, who held the Scalia vacancy open for nearly a year, we wouldn't have this problem. I mean, you know, where to begin? And it all lands on the shoulders of Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she gave us, uh, you know, seven or eight extra years after the male professoria told her, little lady, it's time for you to go. I just don't buy that. In fact, I've come to resent it quite, as you can tell from my tone of voice. 
quite intensely. And you've brought up two really interesting points that I want to turn to. You said, you know, the male professors. It didn't seem to me that Justice John Paul Stevens had anywhere near that pressure. And it did feel like it was tinged with some gender discrimination, overt or not. And then, of course, you bring us to the next thing I want to talk about, which is that there was a seat that was left open for a long time. And I'm talking, of course, about February 2016. Justice Scalia passes away. President Obama nominates Merrick Garland, and that seat is left open for months and months before an election begins. Fast forward, of course, as you talk about in your book, September 2020, Justice Ginsburg passes away. So I know that Mitch McConnell had this theory that because in one instance there was a divided government and in another instance the same party controlled both the Senate and the White House that we should somehow treat a Supreme Court vacancy as distinct. In your view, as you know, one of the nation's leading Supreme Court watchers, you've seen these confirmation hearings. Is there anything to this or is it just a manufactured reason to hold one seat open and to fill one seat quickly? Well, he made it up on the spot. I mean, you know, as, as you said, I mean, the night that Justice Ginsburg died, he summoned President Trump on the phone. Trump was in Air Force One flying back from a campaign appearance and said, uh, Mr. President, you're going to do two things. You're going to fill this seat and you're going to fill it with Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, when people said, wait a minute, you're the one who said that a president at the end of a presidential term doesn't get to do that. He made up this new spin. Well, you know, of course, that's no longer a divided government. So, no, it was a complete make way to get done what he wanted to do. And this probably brings us to the next thing I want to talk about that you discuss in your book, the Federalist Society. So again, to our listeners, we're talking with Linda Greenhouse. She's the author of the new book that I want to recommend to everybody, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. One of the things that people might not understand when it comes to confirmation hearings, particularly recently is the power of the Federal Society. Could you help the listeners understand what is this society? Maybe they haven't heard of it. And how much of a difference are they going to make for the federal bench going forward? Well, people might have heard about the Federalist Society or, or FedSoc, as it's known, when Justice Scalia died in February of 2016. Donald Trump was then just a candidate for president. He wasn't the Republican nominee yet, but he... Uh, called a press conference, and he said, I I think this is right, that uh, he had a list. And if he's elected, here's how he's going to fill the seat with one of these 10 or maybe it was 11 or 12 potential nominees who had been uh, vetted and served up to him by the Federalist Society. And as you suggest, that might have left people scratching their heads, you know, what is that? Is it something like the, you know, American Automobile Association? Right, (laughs) right. And what it is, and and you're right, I do talk quite a lot about its history in the book. It was founded early in the Reagan era in the 1980s by a group of conservative law students, actually, who felt that their view of the way things ought to be working was not adequately reflected in the law school discourse. And it 
rather quickly attracted uh, foundation money, has a lot of money, and members of the Reagan administration and people like Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, and so on. And it grew and grew, and its goal, which is perfectly legitimate, is to cultivate, to grow the next generation of conservative law students, lawyers, and judges. They have kept their eye on the ball through the intervening decades. And I think it's accurate to say that Donald Trump did not appoint a single federal judicial nominee that hadn't been cleared by the Federalist Society. And Trump had over 200 judicial appointments. He had the three on the Supreme Court and all the rest, uh, dozens and dozens, on the federal courts of appeals and on the federal district courts. And they all were vetted by FEDSOC. And of course, the chief justice, who was not appointed by President Trump, but was appointed by the second President Bush, also not exactly hostile in any way to the Federalist Society, but seems, I think, to a lot of people like a different type of conservative. And this is, again, something that you talk about in the book, and I'm hoping we can highlight for the listeners. People are listening to this podcast, they're taking a walk, or they're folding laundry, or they're at work, and it maybe doesn't feel clear to them how much of a difference to their daily lives does it make that the court has shifted so much to the right with these three new appointments by President Trump, and again, Federalist Society kind of stamp of approval, raised and hatched appointments, that the chief justice is no longer the center, that he's no longer the swing vote on the court. Is it hard to kind of overstate what a big shift that is to the right on the court? Well, yes and no. I qualify it by the fact that I think people have somehow gotten an image of John Roberts as somebody who's located in some kind of squishy middle. And Mm -hmm. I don't actually believe that's true. He's very polished. He certainly, I think, I have to assume, cares about the welfare of the court that bears his name, the Roberts Court. But he's got his agenda items, and they're not actually different in kind from the agenda of the five justices who I think you accurately say or seem to be to his right. And one of them is abortion. And he is no friend of the right to abortion. I think he'd be perfectly happy to overturn Roe against Wade, which is what I think the court's about to do on religion. And the court heard a big religion case that involves the channeling of public money to parochial schools. And assuming the court does what I think it's pretty obvious it's going to do, which is to say that's just fine, would be the culmination of a project of John Roberts. And I talk a great deal about this in the book because religion really was a theme of the term that I'm writing about. you know. And then we have the Second Amendment case that was argued last month, the New York gun case that has to do with what restrictions can be put on issuing a license to people who want to walk around carrying a concealed weapon. I don't think that the Second Amendment is a particular agenda item for John Roberts, but I'd be very surprised if he doesn't go along with the majority for whom it obviously is a big agenda item to build on the Supreme Court's Heller decision and expand it 
outside the home into all kinds of Second Amendment questions that keep getting stirred up to the court. So, you know, what should people think about John Roberts? Uh, he's in a tough spot on a number of issues, but on the issues that are most salient right now, the, the kinds of cases that have been argued so far this term and will be decided by the end of the term, I think he's pretty much uh, where the majority is going to be. You just previewed for us basically where I want to go because you did spend a lot of time, important time in the book, talking about the role of religion because the book, of course, focuses on the 2020-2021 term. And I want to go there next, but just out of, I hope what isn't horrible curiosity, I always wonder behind the scenes, given the current dynamic of the court, and I think you laid this out so well in what you just said, which is John Roberts doesn't necessarily, in my mind, have a different aim than his conservative colleagues. I just always have the sense that he cares more about appearances or he wants to do it in a slightly different or more moderate way, but that he is in no way anyone's moderate jurist. It just happens by comparison that he looks, I think, to people like he's in a squishier middle. But some of the decisions in the term that the book focuses on it really seems like the justices went after each other a little bit more than is usual. Is that a misperception? Do you feel like this is a court that generally personally gets along? What are the working dynamics of this composition of the court? Well, of course, last year was completely strange because the court was not meeting in person. Right. And they weren't conferencing in person. They conducted oral argument from their home telephones. And so, you know, whatever personal interactions, of course, personal interactions can exacerbate tension, as we know. But you have to think that if you're seeing somebody day in and day out on the bench and at lunch and so on, um, that you come to maybe get some ability to smooth things over. That didn't happen this year. And I was surprised, and I did write about it, that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito in particular, seemed to be very impatient with the Chief Justice's effort to sort of keep the court on a rational track, you might say. And and this came out, you know, you, you mentioned religion. So the court was asked to basically weigh public health interests against religious interests in a series of cases that came to the court where churches or religious entities of various kinds were challenging the COVID restrictions on the number of people who could gather in an interior space, including spaces for worship. And when Justice Ginsburg was still alive, the court rejected those challenges by a vote of five to four, and the chief justice joined the four liberal justices in saying, we choose public health. When she died within couple of weeks, another case came. And on Thanksgiving Eve last year, it was the first kind of test of the impact of Amy Coney Barrett's arrival in place of Justice Ginsburg. The court flipped five to four the other way. And uh, the chief was now in dissent with the remaining three liberal justices. And, you know, Gorsuch and Alito, they just wanted to pull out all the stops. And um, the Chief is basically on their side. He certainly believes that 
religion occupies, should occupy a privileged place in the public square. That came out in the argument over the state of Maine parochial school tuition case that was just argued. But he didn't want the court to go completely over the cliff. And uh, that's, you know, may not sound like a very objective appraisal, but in my opinion, anyway, uh, that's where the Gorsuch and Alito and Thomas faction would take the court right over the cliff. It seems to me that it's a parallel dynamic that happened just last week in the oral arguments in the Dobbs case, of course, the Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks. And where you hear the chief justice kind of casting about for basically, let's make a very conservative decision. Let's uphold this Mississippi law, but maybe let's not have that sentence that says we're overturning Roe. Let's just say we're upholding the central promise of Roe. It's just a lot narrower than than you thought it was. Can we draw a line between that same dynamic of what you were talking about, what you talked about in the book with respect to religion and what we think might happen with respect to abortion, where Roberts basically wants to get to the same place, maybe just not as quickly? A lot of people read the argument in the way you just described it, that Roberts somehow was not on board for flatly overturning Roe, as some of the others obviously are. I have to say, Jessica, I didn't hear the argument that way. His attack on the very notion of fetal viability as the firewall that has protected the right to abortion ever since Roe said to me, you know, he doesn't see. He's kind of going through the motions, but he doesn't see a middle ground because he's a very smart person. And actually, there is no middle ground. I mean, let's put the cards on the table. And and if Mississippi can ban abortion after 15 weeks, which is months before fetal viability, which has been, as I said, the firewall ever since the court first recognized the constitutional right to abortion, then there's no stopping point. 12 weeks, 10 weeks, the Texas vigilante law is six weeks. Some states would like to have zero weeks. And to call that a slippery slope is to be too generous to it. It's a plunge off the cliff. And I didn't hear John Roberts as articulating or even inviting any particular stopping point there. So I think he's on board with this project, actually. We're talking with Linda Greenhouse, the author of the new book, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. I really want to recommend the book. It was an upsetting and gripping and fantastic read. And I think there's a lot that we're going to be grappling with moving forward. You talked about religion, and we've talked a little bit about abortion. And I wonder if we should go back a little bit to the role of religion in our society and how it could change as a result of, as you say, the rise of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and particularly the free exercise clause and how it's moved, I think you noted, from being a shield to a sword. Could you talk to us a little bit about what that means. I know we already talked about the public health COVID scenario, but what you might be seeing going forward, what we should predict here. Well, I think one thing we're going to see going forward is a continued clash between religious claims and claims of non-discrimination. 
particularly by LGBT people. And that came up in this past term, the case from Philadelphia, where uh, Philadelphia tried to not renew a contract with a Catholic social service agency whose job was to find potential foster parents for the city of Philadelphia and would not consider as foster parents people in same-sex marriages. And the Catholic Social Service Agency won that case. Philadelphia lost that case in a decision that didn't quite go all the way in terms of making doctrinal change, although I argue it actually did beneath the surface. But yeah. I, I think the conservatives on the court, I mean, Justice Alito wrote a, a very, very angry, quote, concurring opinion in that case because the court had not gone as far as he wanted it to go. He and the other super conservatives on the court are basically hunting for victims of LGBT non-discrimination. They want to show that religious people have been victimized by the recognition of same-sex marriage. And so remember, we had the baker who wouldn't bake a couple of years ago, and that case also kind of fizzled. But we've got the florist who won't arrange the flowers. We now have the wedding invitation designer who won't design the wedding invitation and so on. And so I think the religious claims are on the verge of squeezing out the non-discrimination principle that with you know great pain and suffering over many years has been established on behalf of various kinds of minorities. And I think that's a very disturbing trend, and we haven't yet seen it come to full fruition, and I think we will. I agree with everything you said, that you know, that case out of Philadelphia, it's a doctrinal shift without a doctrinal shift, and it does feel like there are members of the court that almost want to do impact litigation, where they're searching for plaintiffs who might be able to help them change the law in ways that um, they've wanted to move the law for a long time now. And I would not like to let you go before I ask you as one of the world's experts on the U.S. Supreme Court. We hear a lot recently about the problems with the institution of the court. And we've talked recently in the news about ways to reform the court. And um, I know this isn't the focus of the book, but I'm hoping I could just ask you, are there a few changes that you would like to see made, even if they're not particularly likely, if we could take our practical hats off for a minute and I could just tap into your expertise of what you think would be positive changes. Yeah, well, of course, none of the changes or very few of the changes that are talked about would kind of solve the current problem. But right. life tenure for federal judges, Supreme Court judges and all other Article Three federal judges is really an anomaly in the world. I think we are the only country that bestows life tenure on its constitutional court as opposed to an age limit or a term of years. And, uh, you know, this does have distorting effects in our politics, in our confirmation process. So, you know, that's something that's been on the table. And the question is how that could be accomplished, whether by constitutional amendment or by some kind of legislative fix. I don't know. I don't really have a settled view on that, but I think that's, you know, something that is certainly worth the serious talk that the president's commission has given it. I think there are, you know, some other ideas that 
would be interesting to play with, such as requiring a supermajority when the Supreme Court overturns an act of Congress so that we wouldn't have a five to four court interposing itself against the will of the legislature. It's kind of interesting, but of course, we know that the court can undermine or hollow out a statute without officially overturning right. it. So, um, you know, look at the Voting Rights Act, look at Shelby County from uh, 2013. So as soon as I thought that, hey, that's, you know, kind of interesting, I thought, but it, it's so easily foiled, yeah. you know. So basically, I think we're kind of stuck. And what we need to do is focus on our domestic politics and work in the political vineyards to elect the kind of people who will nominate and confirm the kind of Supreme Court justices that people that are upset about the court today think they want at least for their children's and grandchildren's generation because there's no easy fix to the capture of the court, which is what we're seeing today. Linda Greenhouse, I'd prefer, you said, let's look at the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County. I'd prefer not to do that. Happy to look at vineyards, as you just talked about, but obviously a lot to talk about when it comes to the Supreme Court. And some of it, I think, deeply distressing, particularly when it comes to abortion and uh, the role of race and religion moving forward. And I want to hopefully end very quickly on a, a much lighter note and just ask you to, I hope, fun questions about you. And so the first question is, if you're stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal, what would it be? One meal? One meal. (laughs) I would take a perfectly prepared um, swordfish and some Brussels sprouts. Does that sound weird? Those are two of my favorite things to eat. So immediately I'm thinking, why not trout? Why not salmon? And why, you know, instead of Brussels sprouts, why not kale? But I know we have a limited time. So no, it doesn't sound weird. I love that answer. We will accept it. Last question is, let's say you had a superpower for one hour. You can fly. You're invisible. Which one would you pick? I wish I could sing. We've never gotten that answer before. There's a reason that I host a podcast and that I don't in any way perform because I also cannot sing to save my life. I love music and I love, you know, pop music and I love Stephen Sondheim and I know the lyrics to thousands of songs and I can't sing a note. It's very sad. You have other talents in life that we have all been the beneficiary of. So on that note, Linda Greenhouse, again, for the final time, the author of the new book that I want to recommend to everybody, Justice on the Brink, The Death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, The Rise of Amy Coney Barrett, and 12 Months That Transformed the Supreme Court. Linda Greenhouse, thank you for your time and for this great conversation. Thanks for having me, Jessica. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Passing Judgment. I love this conversation with Linda Greenhouse, and I hope that you did too. You can find me, as always, on Twitter, Instagram, and a little bit on TikTok, at Levinson Jessica. We wish everybody a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.